All right, here we go. Then we will start with the grounder asker and the very simple question for each of the panel. I'll start with you, Dave. Could the executive at Ascot have done anything differently to ensure more competitive racing yesterday? And should they have done anything differently? I personally don't th I think they could by chucking loads of water on, loads and loads, but I don't think they should, personally. I, I don't like the idea that uh, ground given as good to soft, good in places, is watered. I, I, I think that... I don't. I don't think I'm one of those people who who hasn't moved with that window that you were talking about. I don't think good ground should be a problem in national hunt racing. Um, I saw it, it was reported via the Racing Post website, but I think they were quoting Ascot when they said they'd put five millimeters of rain on the track overnight <laughs> Friday and Saturday. No, unless Not, they've got a, unless they've mean, got a hotline to the big man upstairs. <laughs> <that's, yeah. laughs> um, even Nick Smith. He's, he's, he's close to he godliness, but not that close. Um, it, it used to be watering, then it became irrigation, and the BS needle has now gone up to rain. Um, but I, personally, I, I don't think they. I, I don't think you should do that. I, I don't. I think there's too much watering on the flat and uh, in jump racing twelve well, months of the year. But I'll, I'm not a horseman. I'm a punter. Shark right. would be walking a lot of tracks, probably more than you or I. Probably, possibly not more than Megan, but. Um, what is what is the negative impact of a lot of watering? Listen, I, I'm a bit like him. T too much water is in my is out with me, right? Because probably I have more summer horses than that. But yesterday, I think there's not a thing he could have done. If he had to get rain yesterday morning at seven o'clock and he was after watering, he was wrong, right? Why did he water and um, the rain came, right? Then he had a drying day. I, I just I, I, I just think there's nothing could be done yesterday. It happened, and it'll happen again in different tracks, right? But um, I think there's an awful lot, too much water going on in the tracks. And this leads us on to, to small fields. We know that yesterday's field sizes were affected by a combination of fairly un, unusual circumstances, but you look around today, there's five in a juvenile hurdle at Exeter on ground that no one's going to really have too much of a problem with. Now, Punchestown, the opening race today that takes place on Racing TV yeah. at uh, 11.30, 11.45, whatever it is, 17 runners, 17, 16, 17, Yes, 17. so it was the very same. You have a maiden hurl in Ireland. You have full field. You you got through a rest yesterday in Punchestown. Um, all big field. I, mean, I don't know if the horses are not in England or what, but... Um, I know if they want more Irish people to come over, the rule, I think they're changing in general Yeah, now. it has been changed. You but can all come now. The, yeah, but <laughs> like, if I, uh, I'd bring a horse for one of them novice races, as long as I could bring an ordinary horse to try and win a race. Do you know? So like, the sooner that all opens up, I think you'll have bigger fields in England. And um, we need, as I said earlier... Even with the cost of living across both countries, you think loads of smaller Irish trainers will bring... It's, it's cost of money. It's cost of money to bring horses, but people want winners. Owners want winners. And if I say to an owner tomorrow morning, it's going to cost fifteen hundred pound to bring your horse to England. If he thinks that horse has a chance, mm. he won't mind. So if he can cover his costs and get a couple of grand on top and have a winner, he'd be happy. And have a winner. Everything is about winning. You know. And no matter what syndicate, no matter whatever you have, if just for instance in two months time or in six months time I have a horse at home 
there's 20 lads in the syndicate and I say one thing they're all they're, they're here they're over right mm. like as we spoke about it earlier today we need to get more people back racing do you know I, I thought I was out all pretty much all day yesterday I had to catch up on the racing later but I did catch on my on my phone walk over at Ascot and I thought penny to a pound I know who the trainer is who's won the <laughs> who's, who's won the walk over <laughs> there was only ever going to be one candidate wasn't there <laughs> And he'd know that it was eight thousand seven hundred and fifty-six pounds and three pence to the winner. Yeah, I think it was a bit more. Which was, was it? Probably which was. Yeah, yeah what which was, was it? good. Yeah, it was sixteen thousand or something. So yeah, no, they they were happy, and Lorcan was delighted. I think he said it was his best ride of the year. So um, yeah, it was it was <laughs> it was that, good. Someone's got to do it. Haven't that's they? never happened in Ireland. There'll never be a walkover <laughs> in Ireland. But there's less never. racing on a weekly basis. We, we there's have less racing. we have a lot less racing, but you'll always have John Ryan, for instance he'll put in a horse there that he could be £30 lower and Somebody he'll, will he'll get to three grand for fourth or fifth. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You, like how often do you see a race in Ireland with two or three runners? Don't happen. It happens in England a lot. Yeah. Do you know? All right, let's take a look at a horse who, who won. Kind of what was the, the most anticipated race of the week in the end? The High Fly Bloodstock Novices Chase at Warwick. This was John Bond beating Montmorell and West Cork. Now, small field, but three seriously good horses. One very good one, one potentially really high-class one, and one that could end up being being great. John Bond is now 2-1-ish to one -ish for the Arkle, Dave, and there was at least one column this week. I think it was David Jennings in the Racing Post who said, uh, and I, I think it was smaller, than, shorter than 2-1, to one. I think he's at 6-4, to four, was it? He said it's the most ridiculous price I've ever seen anti-post for a horse. Is it? Um, well, I... I'd like to defer to John O'Connell uh, mm. to start off with this. This and is our racing TV um, colleague yeah, who a, a for a long got, time has been a man who's got a huge experience yeah. of the horse racing and betting industries. Mm. And Angus McNay uh, turned to John uh, after the uh, the novice chase and said, seven to four, John, would you want to back him? And John and, and Angus was obviously, I think, expecting John to say, oh, I wouldn't go near that. And John just said, I wouldn't want to lay him, put it that way. And I thought... Well said. You know, like, would you want to lay uh, Jean Bon at two to one for your for your life? Certainly not. Okay, Sprinter Sacra was. I think he was. It was said that he was eight to one um, for the Arkle after he'd won his novice chase, his first novice chase. I, I looked at the, the the Racing Post analysis and it said um, it's no surprise that that he is a, a, a best price seven to one. So he was seven to one and shorter. But um, we also know. That we know where he's going to go. He's going to go to the Arkle. It'd be very surprising yeah. if uh, they came out and said, right, we're going to go yeah. over two and a half miles. The year that Sprinter Sacra won that match race against Peddler's Cross at Kempton and was then installed as seven to one third favourite for the Arkle, he also was in a year where they had Cucard and Alpha off. Yeah. You know, who at that time were, were better contenders. Are there that many better Arkle contenders in the UK and Ireland than John Bond, Megan? Well, I suppose at the moment, no, but we're yet to see. You know, there could be some more still to, to mm. come out yet. Um, you know, the likes of Willie and Gordon will, will certainly have a, a big team. And um, look, he was foot perfect. He was exceptionally Im impressive uh, the other day at Warwick. And um, on that, he's going to be hard to beat. But it's a very long time until March, and there's a lot more horses to come out yet. Okay, we are going to turn our attentions. We're going to turn codes just for a, a second and talk about flat racing, David. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in fact, it's Megan who wants to kick off on this point with the flat championship. Yeah, I just think it's 
bit bonkers, really. Go on, what? In what? In what way? We're we talking trainers, jockeys. Well, all of it. I mean, you've got a jockeys and owners championship, which runs if you're talking turf from May Guineas weekend until Champions weekend, so mm -hmm. May to October, and then you have a trainers championship, which w runs January to January, which seems a bit odd considering then there's an all weather championship which starts November till April. Mm -hmm. So, and the trainers have their own all weather championship as well. So they all overlap, which all seems a bit madness. But I just think it's such a shame that we've got rid of the, you know, the first race, the Brocklesby at Doncaster in March, up until the November handicap meeting back at Doncaster in November. There's however many months, three months or something of racing, which just basically means nothing. I mean, I, I just think it's mad. And how can there be three different championships for three different... Ca I just I don't, just do not understand it. Is there a way we can clean this up now, Dave? Because it's happened over time. This it's a it's a result of lots of different factors over many years and lots of well-meaning initiatives <laughs> to try and make the sport be, um, better marketed. Is there now a way with this that we can clean this up? And what would be the optimal solution? Right, there's certainly a way that we can clean it up. I I I didn't like the uh, May to October uh, revised championship, the short the short course form. Um, it was denied that it was that it was sort of said at the time because I said, well, it's, you're only doing it because it's Kipco and Kipco, and they said, no, we're not. It's nothing to do with that. Thought, it, it obviously is. I, I loved that um, the, the 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 sort of desperate glory of winning. I know that people say, "Oh, you know, um, it, it was it was too long, and jockeys were exhausted exhausted by the long grind." Personally, I, I, I thought that was a, a wonderful spectacle to watch. Mm. And just one thing that is worth bearing in mind: when they do crown the champion apprentice and the champion jockey at Ascot on Kitco Champions Day, yes, they do get their day in the sun, and there are thousands of people there applauding and all the rest of it, which you might not get at Doncaster on the first Saturday of November. But in terms of media coverage, certainly print coverage, it's just outside the trade paper, mm. it's completely lost in the fog. You know, I mean, I might say a, a little blob to say William Buick was grand champion jockey for the first time. You know, you've got at most 600 words to write about all these Group 1 races. And the fact that a jockey has been has finally been announced to have won a race that he's been leading by 10 lengths for the last three or four months doesn't get any sports editors mm. excited in the least. Okay, let's um, talk about the expansion. Well, not expansion as such, but a diversification as regards the Shadwell roster of trainers. Now, you talk about last year when uh, we lost Sheikh Hamdan al-Maktoum and the operation was being rationalised. People rather feared for the future of the whole operation. Now Baid is standing at stud at £80,000, retiring as a European champion. More young trainers have been added to Shadwell's roster under the stewardship of Sheikh Hamdan's daughter, Sheikh Ahissa. Amongst them, George Bowie, Kevin Philippard Foy is another one. And there is a third younger trainer Harry added to the list as well. Harry Eustace, thank you, Megan, for pointing that out. I was really quite worried. I wanted Shark's view on this as well. I was really worried that training, particularly in this country, was just becoming completely dead man's shoes as regards flat trainers. This is really important that the sport gets a sort of injection of, of youth. That's very, it's very important to get a few younger younger trainers involved with Chadwell. Like, it's so important, you know. Um, and it's great. I didn't realise it, to tell the truth, I didn't see it. But um, when you're after expanding that way, I thought that it may have been the other way that we're going to go all together. And I'm glad that that didn't happen. You know, because they're a very good um, for the game. 
they're good, they're in there for the game, and they're good for it. Uh, you know, we're talking 30-year-olds, basically, not 50, 60-year-olds yeah. yeah. waiting for their chance to, to shine. And uh, uh, picking up on your point earlier on about being able to compete with the, with the sort of training behemoths in, in Ireland, is the sport healthier for a bit more diversification? Of course it is. Why wouldn't it? It's the same as any game. Do you know, like, the more people that you can get involved and the more people that can be involved at the top level, it, it, it's a big help. You, you, you take the National Hunt, you have, you have in England, you have a good spread of it, but like in Ireland, you have a kind of four top trainers and you go into the weekend betting or, and every one of them, them four trainers have all the favourites. And that's where all the good racing is. So, like, if there was a young lad coming up, it's great to see him coming up there and to be able to challenge with that. I think this is great. Honestly, because it's great, obviously, for those three young trainers to get the opportunity. But I think the most important point here is that Shaker Hisser is... She's gone for people who are a similar age to her, mm. who she'll probably find easier to com communicate oh, with, yeah. which is exactly what her father did when he sort of started to build his what is an empire now. He went for trainers who were his age and, and who he could get on with and hopefully have long-term relationships with. And I think it is a sort of big sign that she's in this for the longevity of it. And um, I think this is really, really important and really exciting for the sport. OK, and there are not many things on a weekly basis that we say this is really exciting for the sport. Maybe the new structure of the sport is David Yates. The BHA announced a, a new system of governance this week. It's one for the purists, this one. Not many who went to watch Rick Astley at the Sturgar Cup will have had uh, been up all night thinking about the uh, BHA <laughs> governance structure. I think that's fair to say. Um, but the, the issue... But he's never going to give you up, are the BHA. Uh, I forgot that Jean-Bon thing. He's halfway there. <laughs> down. Um, right. Uh, since since the, the revised model of the, the tripartite, tripartite system from 2015, there has been too much vetoing, I think it's fair to say, of, uh, of, of policy. Uh, on Monday it was announced that the, the members committee has been done away with and I think that was the chief source of, of the, the vetoing uh, of policy. Three committees have come in, uh, they are the commercial committee, the industry advisory committee and the industry program group. Um, the, the idea is that uh, the BHA will now have more power when it comes to the final decision-making, which I think, in theory, we would all agree is a good thing. Uh, the, the, the worst thing, in my opinion, that ever happened to the BHA was when it was denuded of its uh, ability to govern the fixture list, the, the, uh, the OFT ruling of 2003, the decision-making process will now will now take place two-thirds the way up the building uh, with these three committees, and it will be then up to the BHA to, uh, in 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 name, be approving yeah. uh, the new policy and announcing the new policy. But it might be uh, that it's actually made by the power groups that 
exist there already, i.e. the race courses, and the BHA will rubber stamp it. We will see. It reminds me slightly of this when I was a kid, and my mum, we were going on a caravan holiday, and my mum said, <laughs> you, can, you can sort out where we're going. And of course, because I, I wanted to see the Loch Ness Monster, I drew a map from Bedford up to Loch Ness, and she said, no, we're going to Cromer. And it was almost <laughs> like, um, so it was almost like that I, I was the, the BHA and she was the Racecourse Association. And when she didn't want to drive a caravan uh, with four brothers in it going to Loch Ness, she said, we're going to North Norfolk, now get in the car. All we knew, we knew who the boss was. All, all, all for the price of Hewick, don't forget. <laughs> right, those, those were this week's talking points. Julie Harrington, CEO of the British Horse Racing Authority, is up next.